This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 17th of July 2021. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Charles Hecker joins me to chat through the day's front pages. Then... Over the past 18 months, we have come to understand the value of home, the need to be able to stay still and wait for better times. But to then be somewhere else is even more delicious when it finally happens. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, gives us his latest reflections and Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. We'll also hear about The Witches of Orient, a film about some extraordinary Japanese sportswomen. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Rescuers are still trying to find survivors in Germany after torrential rainfall led to catastrophic flooding. Over 100 people are known to have died and 1,300 people are missing in a district south of Cologne. A dam close to the Belgian border has flooded. Heavy rains also hit Switzerland, Luxembourg and the Netherlands, where the Prime Minister Mark Rutte has declared a national disaster in one southern province. And Belgium has declared a day of mourning as the death toll there reaches 20. A US federal judge in Texas has blocked new applications to a programme that protects immigrants who were brought to the United States as children from deportation, but said the hundreds of thousands of people already enrolled would not be affected until further court rulings. Joe Biden, who was vice president when Obama created the programme, has said he wants to start a permanent pathway to citizenship for DREAMers. In South Africa, riots sparked by the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma are stabilising and calm has been restored to most of the affected areas, according to President Cyril Ramaphosa. He said the violence that's rocked the country was pre-planned, describing it as an assault on democracy. He said that more than 2,500 people have been arrested in connection with the unrest and urged South Africans to come together, adding, this is not a battle that we can afford to lose. And in our Monocle Minute weekend edition email bulletin, find out how Chinese love cinemas have transformed the dating lives of the country's teens before discovering how London's fashionable types are staying in pocket. Then Fritz Hansen's CEO, Joseph Kaiser, tells us his must-see cultural spots in his adopted home of Copenhagen. And we catch an airwave with Raglan Community Radio in the Black Sand Surfer's Paradise on New Zealand's North Island. For more, go to monocle.com forward slash minute. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Let's dive into that news in a bit more detail because I have Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks, with me to have a look through this morning's papers. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. It's always so lovely to see you, particularly on this very beautiful day here in London. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's gorgeous outside and it's beautiful inside in the studio here with you, Georgina. Ah, oh, isn't that nice? Except, <laughs> unfortunately, we're about to dampen the mood because the papers are not happy today. It's a little bit gloomy today, Georgina, but we take the world as it is, not as we want it to be. You and I together will lift the mood of the nation as we go through a little bit of sobering news. We're going to start with the FT Weekend Edition on the very front page. Quite a howling headline here that says, Lifting Curbs Poses Threat to the World. 
what the FT tells us is that there has been an emergency summit of public health officials from all around the world who together have jointly said that Monday's upcoming lifting of all of England's remaining COVID-19 restrictions is actually hazardous for every other nation in the world because they think that it will turn England into a breeding ground for variants. And as you know, we're struggling with the Delta variant right now here in the UK and, and numbers of infections every day are skyrocketing. And when you take the brakes off, as we will do on the very inaptly named Freedom Day on Monday, um, you run the risk of new virus types emerging. Um, the UK is uniquely positioned actually to spread variants because it's a major global transportation hub. So a real word of caution here before all hell breaks loose on Monday. So this, it would seem to me, is all done in the name of political expediency. It's Boris Johnson going for popularity within the country. It's him lifting rules when he said he wouldn't. He said he would be, uh, it would be the data, not the date. That's, I mean, almost everything he has said about this pandemic, he's had to reverse, he's been proved wrong. And yet again, he's having to row back on this without actually saying, we're cancelling Freedom Day. He's just going, well, be well, be very, very cautious. Well, you know, you're right. And, and in public statements in the past few days, I think ministers are preparing the public for the reimposition of restrictions a little bit further down the road. The UK now has more infections with COVID-19, more active infections than any other country in the world, aside from Indonesia and Brazil. Um, but Boris Johnson, you're absolutely right. We know that he is a politician who wants to be liked. We know that he's a politician who doesn't like to deliver bad news. And what he wants is for everybody to have a great summer and to thank him for it. Um, and that's why he's doing what he's doing on Monday. Um, and if he has to roll things back, um, you know, he's not going to take the blame for it. Absolutely not. And just, I mean, just having a look at some of the stories surrounding him, one story that really for me illustrates just what this government is at the moment is the appointment of uh, a former lawyer, Ewan Ferguson, uh, who's just about to begin a five-year stint on the Committee of Standards in Public Life. So this is the committee that basically polices the ethics of, of people in public life, including MPs. It turns out this man was at university with Johnson. In fact, he was a member of the elite Bullingdon Club, and there are photographs that show this. I feel like the government is thumbing its nose at people like us. It is another installation of an ongoing series called the Chumocracy um, that is ruling number 10. And, you know, this is also another example of the government marking its own homework and, and hiring close associates to oversee ethics. And, and, you know, the track record here is not that great. There was an examination of how number 10 Downing Street was decorated, and that resulted in a, a minor slap on the wrist. There was an investigation into how the prime minister paid for his holiday, and there was a minor slap on the wrist. And by appointing an old schoolmate of yours as the government ethics supervisor, um, really makes you wonder about the transparency of, of this sort of work. When you can't say that you're 
known ethics czar is somebody that you have an, an arm's length relationship with, and how can you understand that this individual is going to be objective in the way they examine public behavior? Yeah, absolutely. But so many other things. Of course, this started with Dominic Cummings and his whole uh, <laughs> driving to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight. Then we had Matt Hancock, of course, caught in this intimate clinch with his aide. He's now left government, although Johnson said that he would back him. I love I love the idea what he of, of what he sort of did because it, you could have a, a beauty parlor analogy. It was uh, back uh, uh, and then crack and then sack. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really I don't know quite how to follow on to that, except to say that, yes, with Matt Hancock, you know, not only was he breaking quarantine and, and, and lockdown rules, but the individual that he was having an affair with was meant to be supervising him. She was on a supervisory committee, a board of overseers at the Department of Health uh, and you know, complete breakdown of any sort of objectivity or, or any sort of distance literally, in the relationship between the supervised and the supervisors. Of course. And then, of course, there's, there's Michael Gove, uh, who seems to have kept his job. Nobody is... is uh, we've completely moved on from, from this story where uh, we're, we're told that he's been uh, seeing his special advisor, a man called Josh Grimstone. It's somebody we've talked about on this programme before. Uh, uh, there's been no denial of that. And it's it's... It really does seem that we, uh, uh, the government is totally uh, ignoring its own rules. Well, and at the end of every one of these episodes, you hear the same line repeated from the prime minister, and that is, I consider the matter closed. And what he does is he moves on. And I suppose it's it's fortunate in an, in, a, in a perverse sort of way that... This news is immediately overtaken by something else in the news cycle and, and, and the world moves on. Yeah, 52%. That's what the polls are saying. The people that back Johnson and the Conservatives. It beggars belief. <laughs> something magic about the number 52% in the way that the UK votes on everything. <laughs> uh, listen, we're, we're sort of moving on, but not really, because, of course, COVID uh, is affecting travel. And we were told that people here in Britain uh, could go to amber countries and they wouldn't have to quarantine. Suddenly, a lot of those uh, amber countries or countries that were green are now amber. And, of course, uh, France now, you can't come back from there either. You're right. If you're looking at today's papers in the UK, you really can't avoid the front page story about what's happened between travel um, in travel between the UK and France. So cross-channel travel has been thrown into complete chaos. Um, the Guardian tells us, quarantine to remain for vaccinated UK travelers returning from France. And so this sort of upsets the apple cart in a number of different ways. And, and we were told that people who had two jabs of COVID-19 vaccines were going to be able to travel more liberally. Um, that's not the case. We're also told that countries that are on the amber list, when you're coming back from them, you don't have to quarantine. That's also not the case. And this all focuses on France, which, by the way, has a lower infection rate than the UK. The issue of concern here, The Guardian and all of the other papers tell us, is that the beta variant is 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 wandering around France, although, again, at a lower rate than other infections in other countries. And the UK is trying to protect against the reimportation of the beta variant, the, the, the variant of the virus that was first discovered in South Africa, uh, bringing it back 
into the UK. Um, but there is also politics in this as well. There are plenty of places that we could be going. There are plenty of places that should be coming here. That's not happening because politics interferes, interferes in these decisions. Well, absolutely. I wonder when we get to Omega, if, if ever, uh, on this. Now, there's one person uh, who seems to have been travelling anyway, <laughs> and that is our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Let's, uh, let's hear what he has to say in his weekly column. A few days in Parma de Mallorca, staying at the new apartment. For the double jab, travel is getting easier, and this time I don't need a Covid test to enter Spain, just to complete a simple locator form. The UK wants two tests, one to get back in, and another two days after getting home, but we're learning to deal with these demands, do all the paperwork, and keep moving. And although the Balearic Islands have gone from the UK's green to amber status this week, it makes no difference to the double jabbed, who can still travel there without having to quarantine. Why bother, though? The plane leaves London with rain cascading down the fuselage. And then, just a couple of hours later, we're in the hire car, driving under the unblemished blue skies into Parma, past the imposing cathedral, past the marina, past the grand old waterfront houses, and up towards the tennis club and our miniature pad. And, like the car, you effortlessly shift gear as you head down those streets. Even your eyes work better. You look around, taking in every sight. Even after being here so many times, you feel a little excited. I thought I'd come to know this city reasonably well over the years, but perhaps some of that excitement also comes from realising that it's even more special than I'd imagined. I have breakfast at Café Ruitort with my friend Roberto the Potter, and afterwards we snake through the old stone-paved streets to his new shop where he sells his vases and his business partner in this venture sells orchids. The shop is painted dark blue and is called Blue and it's a little gem. The manager is busy misting the orchids. Roberto fixes the display. The shop sits on a stepped alley called Costa Can Montaner and in the neighbouring buildings are a design store, a seller of vintage furniture, a dressmaker. So much to discover. Then we curl up towards the food market, Mercat de Oliver, where the stalls, little cafes and shops are already doing a brisk trade. He then shows me a giant ancient tree, a new farmer's market, a hidden bar, a secret garden, his favourite place for ice cream. I hope I would be as generous with my time and my address book with making a city's life that bit easier to navigate. And I also hope that these things, and many more, will become places that I will get to know and use. I've never lived anywhere except the UK, and being able to have the beginning of some routes here in Parma is a privilege, and one that I value more than I'd expected. Over the past 18 months, we have come to understand the value of home, the need to be able to stay still and wait for better times. But to then be somewhere else is even more delicious when it finally happens. A spectacles company has sent me a link to their app. I need it because there's a scanning option that lets you create a sort of 3D map of your face, which in turn allows a spectacles company to know the precise measurements of, say, the bridge of your nose. You stare into your phone's camera, twist your head right and left, and in seconds, up pops a very detailed picture of your visage. At first, when I looked at the completed scan, I thought I'd mistakenly jumped to a picture of the elephant man 
or perhaps one of those images used by archaeologists to reconstruct what some wizened, mummified body might have looked like when actually alive. I decided to do the scan again. No way were they having this on their records. This time, my face resembled a geographical surveyor's map of the ocean floor. I apparently have creases deeper than the freaking Mariana Trench. I was only surprised not to spot the odd shipwreck embedded in my crumpled forehead. I'm not sending them this, I huffily told the other half, who annoyingly didn't seem that surprised by the picture. Do you think I actually look like this, like the cartoon character SpongeBob SquarePants? His response was far from convincing, but he agreed that we could do it again and that he would art direct this time. But then he glanced at my phone and said, Oh, too late. It seems you've already sent it. So now there's an eyewear engineer somewhere in the world trying to make a pair of glasses that would look good on a sponge. Let's see how this one ends. If it's any comfort at all to you, Andrew, I don't think you look like a sponge. And it's very, very difficult trying to get the right kind of glasses, isn't it, Charles? Um, I've actually just, I've, I've, I've had my prescription updated once the pandemic was over. And, you know, I had a pile of old eyeglass frames at home that I took into the optician. I had them all upgraded to the new prescription. And now I'm going to mix and match all week long. I do that too. I've got a sort of basket full of glasses by my front door. And as I go out, I sort of choose the one that's appropriate for the day. As long as you don't forget to grab at least one pair before you leave the house, everything will be fine. Absolutely. My sort of glasses wearing is slightly complicated by the fact that there's only one place where I like to buy my lenses. It makes me sound like such a pretentious ass to say this, but it's a little vintage shop in Buenos Aires. Oh my God. Okay. I was thinking, well, you know, I have, there's one place that I go to every Every single time. It's a family-owned business. It's in London, so I can get there on my bicycle. Um, but, you know, next time you go eyeglass shopping in Buenos Aires, can I come with you, please? Absolutely. No, honestly, the last time I went to BA, I went solely to go and get glasses. I mean, I had to kind of, you know, pretend I was going to a bookshop or something. I was but... Other people go for the food, they go for the nature, they go for the waterfall, you know, for the, you know, but, you know, we'll go for eyeglasses. Well, I also went to kind of go and sing bits of Evita in the cemetery there, but let's, let's move on from that. Shall we? <laughs> I really, really want to talk about GB News. Now, first of all, for people outside of Britain, they may not know what GB News is. Can you explain? Well, GB News is a recent entrant into the UK media landscape. And it was a television station, interestingly, founded to reflect, I guess you could fairly say, a fairly right-wing point of view, number one. Um, Number two, it's a new entrant in the culture war, in that GB News promised to say that they were going to wage war against cancel culture. Uh, We'll get to that in a second, I think. Um, And then the other thing about GB News is that most of, if not all of, its funders and backers come from somewhere outside GB. Uh, and, And so it's this interesting mix that is trying to sort of worm its way into the landscape and try to push aside the BBC, um, ITV, Channel 4 and all of the other main players, but it's not gone to plan, has it? It really hasn't. The launch was catastrophic. There were uh, there were so many technical glitches and so on. They've done some very big name hires and they've taken people from a lot of mainstream media. Andrew Neil uh, was very much in charge, it seemed at first. He said that the, the station was not going to be like Fox News, uh, but um, it does seem that it was, was heading that way. Neil himself, interestingly, has disappeared. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just shortly after the fairly catastrophic launch 
of the news channel, uh, Andrew Neil decamped to his home in France. And and it kind of sounded almost as if he had some sort of breakdown. I mean, the, the explanation for why he left the air um, and is no longer appearing on his flagship show wasn't entirely clear, but it sounded like it was sort of disagreement with management, disagreement with the owners, and, and just general upset at, at, at all of the technical difficulties of the launch. And he kind of threw his toys out of the pram and headed to France. And has since said it's just teething problems. Any startup has this. Right. Um, but the teething problems really took a turn for the worse the other day. And actually, there's a piece in The Guardian that tells us GB News in crisis as exec quits and presenter is pulled for taking the knee. And again, um, for people who live outside what's going on in the UK right now, although this was an issue in the in Euro 2020, um, there was enormous racist abuse hurled at um, three black football players um, who missed their penalty kicks at the end of the Euro 2020 final in which um, England lost to Italy. Anyway, moving on from that, the England football team at the beginning of every game kneels um, as a gesture to the racist abuse that minority football players face, not just in the UK, but around the world. Um, and this is, you know, criticized in what's called the woke media as gesture politics. And in fact, our own prime minister and um, Pretty Patel, the, the home minister, um, criticized this as, as gesture politics. What happened was one of the presenters on GB News took the knee in the studio. Let's hear it. With the benefit of hindsight, I may have underestimated how close to the surface the racism still was. I actually now get it, and so much so that I think, you know, we should all take the knee. In fact, why not take the knee now and just say it's a gesture, but it's an important gesture. That was Guta Harry taking the knee on air, and now he's been sacked. So there was a massive freakout um, when Guto Harry took the knee live in the studio. And so what happened was all of GB News's viewers, and there aren't that many to begin with, they wrote in and said, we are never, ever going to watch the show, you know, anything on your channel again. And then the other side said, well, listen, you know, the pot started calling the kettle black and saying, look, you're a television network, a broadcast that came out against cancel culture. And what you're doing is you're canceling Guto Harry. It's, it's just been a mess. Uh, and just to, to pick up on something you said there, that there aren't very many uh, viewers, uh, the Guardian actually says for some programs there are zero viewers. Yes, what the Guardian tells us in in, in its coverage of of the fate of of GB News is that basically everybody in the studio is doing this for fun because nobody is watching, uh, and and there are some shows that have zero viewers, and if Andrew Neil doesn't have the right cable package in his subscription in France, he won't be able to watch his own network either. <laughs> let's uh, let's see what Andrew Andrew Muller has to say about what's been going on this week because I think think he's going to be addressing many of the topics we're interested in too. Let's hand over. To what we learned. We learned this week that Roy Moore had not ceased delighting us. Who? 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 I've heard of him. Who? I'm not sure. Who's that then? I don't recognise that name at all. I've never heard of him. I don't know that one. Ronald. Come on, you remember. Roy Moore was a minor attraction of the circus commanded by former US President Benito Cartman, a former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama, albeit one whose two stints in the role were ended by removal for judicial misconduct. Moore was then the Republican candidate for one of Alabama's seats in the US Senate in 2017, endorsed by one notable cheerleader. So get out and vote for Roy Moore. Do it. 
This Alabamans declined to do, not least due to unsavory allegations vis-a-vis Moore's personal conduct which emerged during the campaign. An associate of Donald Trump's turning out to be some sort of creepy weirdo. We were as shocked as you were. These, in turn, provided the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen with the setup when Moore subsequently agreed to be on his show Who is America, in the belief that Moore was speaking not to Baron Cohen, but to an Israeli security expert who demonstrated an exciting new tool for detecting sex offenders. It is very, very uh, simple to use. You just switch it on, and because uh, Neither of us are sex offenders, then it makes absolutely nothing. You just put it on, you put it nearby. Wait, this is obviously a problem. Hold on. Moore, unamused by the bogus machine beeping in his vicinity, sued Baron Cohen, seeking $95 million for emotional distress or whatever. But we learned this week that Moore's case had been tossed by a US district judge on the grounds that it was, we're paraphrasing somewhat, just absolute honking nonsense. And we learned when we looked it up, backing a hunch because this sort of thing does seem to happen a lot these days, that the beak who laughed Moore's lawsuit out of his court, one John P. Cronin, was appointed by, can you guess? And then they have cans of soup. Soup. So we are continuing to learn what a shockingly yet hilariously disloyal bunch American judges are. However, we did, in fairness, learn something of the terrifying if completely imaginary dystopian horror into which Roy Moore, Donald Trump and their allies are heroically labouring to prevent America and indeed the free world as a whole from falling. And we learn this from Marsha Blackburn, who unlike Roy Moore has been elected to the US Senate, in her case by the people of Tennessee. Taylor Swift came after me in my 2018 campaign. But Taylor Swift would be the first victim of that because when you look at Marxist socialist societies, they do not allow women to dress or sing or be on stage or to entertain or the type music that she would have. So we've learned that America's ultra-conservative religious right, of which Senator Blackburn is very much a member, are now heartily in favour of rock singers expressing themselves. You live long enough, you get to see everything, etc. Anyway. We learned of some good news for tourists. In Lebanon, we learned of an exciting and or alarming new revenue-raising initiative by the cash-strapped country's Stony Broke military. Lebanon's army has branched out into the helicopter joyride business. We learned that 150 US dollars will buy you a 15-minute spin in a Robinson R-44 training chopper flying out of Hamat Air Base, an hour or so by road north of Beirut, and yes, we looked that up, happy to help. And we also learned of some bad news for tourists. The love 
learned that anybody who reckons that the midst of an unconquered pandemic is just the moment to coop themselves aboard a gigantic floating petri dish will not be visiting Venice. Let's scratch off the Urzart 70s soul sitcom theme and swap in some bloke in a stripy shirt and a straw hat bellowing in a canoe. Italy has decided, after some years of clamour for such a move, to ban cruise ships from the Venice Lagoon. Venetians have been campaigning against the vast vessels for ages, complaining that they are unsightly, polluting, damaging to the foundations of the gaudy palaces on stilts that a bunch of dingbats decided some centuries back to build in a swamp, and that they disgorge into Venice's famously non-existent streets colossal hordes of slovenly rubberneckers who rarely purchase much beyond a fridge magnet. Here's Michaela Gervasuti speaking on Thursday's Globalist. Obviously, there are 98,000 tons. If you imagine that the Titanic was uh, only 40,000 tons, and uh, they pass uh, in uh, small canals, and uh, it's a miracle that only a few accidents happen until today. In these 18 months, uh, we had the dolphins in, on the Grand Canal in front of the Bauer Hotel. We had the turtles. We had, uh, you know, a whale that arrived to the Lido. So everybody thought that finally the nature has won against the big ships. Researching the matter further, we learned that the lobby group which has steered the campaign against the cruise ships is called No Grandi Navy. Eager as ever to present our listeners with as complete a picture of events as possible, we, of course, wanted to translate No Grandi Navy into English, but found ourselves completely stumped. So we asked Monocle's Italy desk chief, Chiara Ramella, to help us out. No Grandi Navi. It means no big ships. Christ alive, did you make me come downstairs just for this? Thanks, Chiara. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Yeah, it was Andrew Muller there, and he was, uh, of course, giving us his roundup of uh, the news this week, and indeed played in a clip of my friend Michele, who uh, was uh, the, such a generous and funny guide to Venice. He lives in this extraordinary palazzo uh, on the banks of the Grand Canal, and uh, it's just stuffed full of art. I've just been showing Charles some of the photographs I took there, uh, and uh, he's a very generous host. We went off to sample the delights of Venice and I must say he's um he's quite a chap also probably a very nice place to go eyeglass shopping I imagine (laughs) yes yes yeah I'm told because I can't see the people on zoom when I'm this side of the glass I'm told he appeared with his shirt unbuttoned to the navel and his uh, medallions gleaming (laughs) (laughs) acceptable zoom behavior (laughs) exactly luckily I'm not able to see Charles I want to go on to something much more serious much uh, closer to home for me at any rate which is the violence in South Africa Now, this, of course, all started when Jacob Zuma was jailed for contempt when he uh, for 15 months when he failed to turn up for this inquiry over state capture. And it is state capture that it would appear is driving this. A small amount of people got extremely wealthy while Zuma was in power. 
he's now being prosecuted for this. And those people, of course, do not want to let that go. And it now seems uh, that uh, even Cyril Ramaphosa, is the, the uh, president of South Africa, is agreeing that this actually is an organised insurrection. There's been terrible, terrible violence in South Africa, appalling looting. And one of the, the, the facets of this that, that I think is extremely worrying is that you have people trying to protect their own communities. Now, you could call them vigilantes, and indeed, there has been some terrible behaviour. I believe many looters have been shot dead by the vigilantes. Uh, and what this has done, because they are community-based, so quite often along uh, sort of ethnic lines, uh, has really, really driven racial violence there. And for all the Rainbow Nation rhetoric, I'm afraid that those racial divides run so deep within the country. And honestly, you scratch the surface like this and it all comes pouring back. Yeah, it's it's a sad, sad story. And there's something in the New York Times that tells us that more than 117 people are dead and that there are tens of thousands of troops on the streets in South Africa. And while this is a story that is close to home for you, Georgina, it's close to home for the rest of the world as well, because what's happening in, in South Africa is a test of the democracy there. Um, and um, President Ramaphosa is actually trying to hold the line of an independent judiciary and saying that former President Zuma is in violation of, of, of the law. He's been, been held in contempt of court and people who are held in contempt of court, no matter who they are or what they did in the past, are subject to the law like everybody else. And an independent judiciary is one of the hallmarks of a functioning democracy. Um, democracy all around the world is under pressure and under threat. We have an increasing number of countries that are run by authoritarian regimes, a decreasing number of genuine democracies around the world, and all eyes are on South African now to see how this country weathers its most recent crisis. Absolutely, because what is happening there is is basically what brought uh, Modi to power, what brought Bolsonaro to power. It's exactly the same uh, kind of tra trajectory. And as you say, we're watching this very, very carefully. Speaking of Bolsonaro, 10 days with hiccups. <laughs> Uh, hospitalised, uh, but better now. It was an intestinal blockage. Of course, he was shot in 2018, so that was why his ins insides are pretty messed up. The pictures are all over the papers of him already roaming around the hospital, smiling broadly. I'm, I'm glad that you said intestinal blockage before I did. I was wondering if you were <laughs> going to go there. Presumably, the blockage has been relieved. I believe so. I believe so. Now, listen, it's traditional to, to end uh, sort of programmes like this with sports news, but of course, we're a very non-traditional broadcaster. So we're going to bring you sports but also movies. Released in the UK earlier this week is The Witches of Orient, an incredible true story of an unstoppable textile factory team in post-World War II Osaka, who became the legendary Japanese women's national team and triumphed at the 1964 Olympic Games in Tokyo. Well, named The Witches of Orient for their supernatural skill on the court, director Julian Farrow transcends the archetypal sports documentary as he layers the narrative with personal stories from the witches, unseen archival footage and vintage manga comics. Here he is in conversation with Monocle's Paige Reynolds. He starts by talking about what drove him to make the film. I'm in charge of a film collection owned by the French Sport Institute. Ten years ago, a French volleyball trainer came to my place and he brought with him um, two reels. It was two 60mm films. And I was uh, all of a sudden stunned by what I saw, by the intensity of the, the training session, by the speed of the moves of the witches. And it also rang a bell immediately because when I was a, I was a kid, I used to watch uh, an anime 
on TV and it was very much alike the footage I saw. So I just realized that um, this very popular um, anime in France was actually inspired by a true story. The more I knew about them, the more my desire to make a film on them increased. I'm wondering, obviously, after doing that research, presumably you went to Japan, you started reaching out to the, the witches, to the women who, who make up that team. What was it like meeting them kind of in person, having, I guess, first seen, you know, this footage from the 50s and the 60s? How did that make you feel? And I guess, how did that also influence the, the narrative of the film? I was very, very glad to meet them uh, finally because it, it took us almost one year to geolocalize them. So the, the very first time we met physically, it was in uh, June 2019. And I was really impressed by their physical uh, health. They were very strong women and it was very impressive to be uh, in front of them. I, I knew that uh, it will influence the narration uh, of the film because it was my choice uh, from the beginning. I didn't have uh, a need to write the, the voiceover myself. It's the very first time, because th these times I really want to, to give the opportunity to the players, to the witches, to express themselves. I thought that in the archives, there was uh, a lack of testimony. We don't have the, the players point of view, but only comment and um, interpretation from Westerners or Japanese uh, male. So when I met them, it was very pleasing for me because um, I didn't know uh, what's going to be uh, said. I also discovered and found out things that uh, I didn't know before. In that answer, you did mention kind of their sort of physical health. That's something that really struck me when I, I watched it. I mean, they must be in there. I don't know, late 70s, 80s now, and they're all still so active. You see one of them in the gym, you see uh, another one of the witches still teaching volleyball. I mean, for me, it also felt a bit like a kind of window into Japan as well, and I suppose the lifestyle there and the, the health and, and the well-being of, of Japanese people more generally. The majority of the Western press uh, were shocked and were disagreed with the the harshness of, of the, the coach and uh, they didn't like um, uh, it because uh, it was quite new for Westerners to, to watch um, women train like that. Women in, in Western country were allowed to, to do everything but sparringly with moderation. And for the first time we face uh, a group of women that train without any moderation. And if the players were forced to train like this or um, injured, uh, they probably not uh, play today um, volleyball and they were not uh, so, so healthy. So it was a kind of um, a proof that uh, this uh, story was not um, a sad story, a sordid story. Another thing I quickly want to talk about is kind of this idea that the strength of the team, the way in which they kind of were training and how they were showing themselves to the world stage, this kind of story of Japan finding its feet, showing its resilience, showing its strength, also seems to be perhaps a symbol of Japan in that post-World War II recovery phase, or at least Osaka. Was that kind of in your mind when you were making the film? Yeah, I thought... Um 
the best way to um, to tell this story was to use um, this type of multi-layered film. It's a hybrid film uh, with anime footage, uh, footage of uh, sports footage, but also uh, reconstruction and um, uh, war scenes also with the destruction of Tokyo. And this story has many, uh, many dimensions and many aspects. So I really thought that we have to uh, to find um, a narration and uh, the film has to to find a form that uh, really convey and explain the story. They work in a factory, so the, the industrial um, work and effort, the repetition was um, in the training and also in the, in the production of the cotton. And uh, those players were uh, training very hard, but the whole country um, was working very hard also. So. And for the anime part, um, we knew better the anime than the true story that was in, inspired everything. So everything was mixed up and sometimes a kind of confusion. So I said to myself, maybe we can add some more confusion to the confusion. And that was director Julian Farrow in conversation with Monocle's Paige Reynolds. You'll be able to catch the witches getting the glory they deserve as they torch bear at the Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony next week. Or perhaps not, because Charles, the Japan Times is uh, reporting that the first case of COVID-19 has been found in the Olympic Village. That's right. With less than a week to go before the opening of the Tokyo Olympics, the Japan Times tells us that one case has been found in the Olympic Village. What that typically means, however, is there's much, much more to come. Um, Tokyo's own um, count of infections is now rising quite quickly. There is a state of emergency in the city. Um, Some of the athletes have tested positive upon arrival from other countries. Some of the officials um, have tested positive. And now in the very sort of mini city that houses the Olympic athletes, we have what looks like the beginning of an outbreak. Charles, surely you don't have to to be a a great sporting brain or an organisational brain. Anybody can see this is madness. Why is it going ahead? Well, um, a few things to think about. Um, I don't think that that Japan could tolerate socially, politically, um, the cancellation of the games that they've been preparing for for all these years. There is an election coming up um, that you would like to see. You know, Prime Minister Suga, I'm sure, would like to have as much of a successful Olympics as he can, even though public opinion actually is against having the Olympics now in Japan. Um, You probably have a group of sponsors breathing down your neck saying the show must go on. uh, And it's too late. It's just too late to pull the plug at this point. It's extraordinary. So... I'm not good at very many things. If you had to, like, nominate the thing that would be your Olympic speciality, <laughs> not necessarily a sport, just just what are you kind of Olympic grade at? <laughs> Alcohol consumption doesn't count, does it? No. <laughs> um, you know, I, um, so I, you know, I've taken up running over the pandemic. Um, I am nowhere near any kind of competitive level. I used to swim like like lots of like lots of kids. Uh, I was on a swim team. Um, I would be very happy to watch some swimming at an upcoming Olympics. I'm a very good Olympic spectator. I did a lot of that here in London. Um, but you're not going to see me putting on trainers or shorts or any kind of athletic kit um, in, in, in the near future at the Olympic level. 
But, I mean, you're pretty Olympic level at sort of, I don't know, political analysis and things like that. If there were a political risk analysis Olympics, I would eagerly participate and, and even hope for a decent spot on the uh, on the podium, you know, the metal platform. But there I am kind of bigging myself up and, 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 and I should probably take it easy on that. Well, I, I completely agree with you. I think you're, you're a medalist on that front, whereas I can only aspire to perhaps my Olympic uh, speciality would be knowing the location of every dog poo bin on Hampstead Heath. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I really think we should leave it. <laughs> Charles Hecker from Control Risks, from Olympic-level Control Risks. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, uh, and to our supervising producer, Marcus Hiffey. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Music.